0: You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Gang. it's uh large william here for another episode of the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema at tiff. uh this episode is going to feature the black swan uh as well as pink Saris. It's two very different films with uh i think the one common thread of course would be the the very feminine themes or the 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 presence of uh of females throughout these two films. uh they're probably the two most feminine films <laughs> i'd seen despite being decidedly different. Um, So the first one, I'm going to just jump right in here, uh, and that is going to be The Black Swan, which, um, of course, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, Aronofsky's, I I think, universally considered one of the best filmmakers going uh, today. Um, I mean, you look at his track record, and, uh, I mean, everything from Pi upwards, I I think is, is quite good. Uh, Pie, Reckoning for a Dream, The Fountain, The Wrestler, which was actually one of the first films I ever saw at TIFF, um, and now this one, of course, Black Swan. And the Black Swan, uh, Black Swan, I should say, not the Black Swan, um, is a film that really, on the surface, would probably have the least amount to offer me in terms of interest. It uh, I'll read you the plot, uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it by now I've been kind of ranting and raving about it uh, pre-seeing it uh, and it's been kind of all over uh, online um, it's, So, a thriller that hones in on the relationship between a veteran ballet dancer and a rival so, I mean, that's kind of a kryptonite word for me, bit ballet but um, I believe it was Uncool Cat or I can't remember who it was now uh, we were kind of laughing about the fact that You know, despite that, ballet films tend to have a pretty good track record with me. Um, They're kind of batting a thousand right now, to use a sports term, uh, in that. Suspiria and this uh, are two (laughs) quite good films, uh, despite the backdrop of ballet. So, as I said, this is the second Aronofsky for me, and and it was actually the second Vincent Cassel film of this particular festival for me. Um, The first one, of course, being Our Day Will Come, the the Romain Gavras film. Um, this one I was fortunate fortunate enough to see with, oh, it was Vishnu, that's who it was, I was talking about the, uh, the whole ballet track record thing with, um, Vishnu and I got to say the pleasure of seeing this at the Winter Garden Theatre here in Toronto, and for Sammy, uh, that is the one where we saw, um, uh, the Winding Refn film, uh, with the Mute Viking and, uh, oh gosh, Valhalla Rising, that's right. Um, beautiful theater. It's an old theater. Um, really, a nice setting for something that, that on the surface, is as elegant as this film is. This is a film that that has a, a pretty strong cast that I think, um, through no fluke, uh, tends to have some physical resemblance to each other, at least in terms of the three female principals in it. And that, of course, being, or at least amongst the ballet, uh, the ballerinas. That being, of course, Natalie Portman. Mila Kunis and Monona Ryder. Uh, and then, of course, they're accompanied by a number of others, primarily, of course, and most interestingly, Vincent Cassell. Um, the film, I mean, right away you see in the trailer, and it really carries over well into the film, is just how impressive visually it is. I mean, one of the things I found, and I really don't know if this was uh, a conscious effort by Cassell, uh, excuse me, by Aronofsky but I do know he is a genre film fan and and I was kind of comparing and contrasting the color palettes between Suspiria and this um and how Suspiria of course is is a very colorful film, it's a kaleidoscope whereas this really, the color palette is black, white grey, most I mean really to the extreme throughout most of the film so when you see very minor flourishes of color it's a bit striking for you, it uh Because, like I said, everything from uniforms to production to the sets to to everything really revolves around the black, white and gray. Um, And the film really opens up with a kind of a stunning sequence with uh, a ballet sequence uh, going on. And and we see almost immediately that uh, Portman's character, Nina, that she's she's kind of emotionally stunted uh, in that. Well, before we even get into that, how fragile she is, and that's something you're going to hear me talk about a lot in this review, is how impressively fragile she is in this film. Um, she's an actress that I think doesn't get an lot of credit. She has the range to do a lot, and she kind of gets roped into a lot of Hollywood stuff because she's got that fresh, cute face um, that, that's a little bit younger than her years. Um, but I'll say it now, and I'll be forthright in saying this, if she... Doesn't win the Oscar for Best Actress for this, um, it's it's criminal, and you know not to say they're the barometer of course or validate quality, but uh, you you certainly want to see someone put in a performance like hers recognized for it. So I mean we really see see early on that I guess the best way I could put it with her would be kind of to say that emotionally she's like a house of cards, and you ju- I mean you just see her face, she has this very tenuous grasp on on her emotions and how fragile she is. She's like this this China doll that is just on the, the verge of being dropped and just shattered into a million pieces at several instances in the film. And, and of course, anyone who's even marginally familiar with ballet, whether it's through the Altman film, uh, the company I believe it was with uh, Neve Campbell, or any film knows that, it, say what you will about it from a male perspective, but it's a very demanding and rigorous uh Uh, venture, be it mentally, physically, etc. So we kind of see that her character is, uh, like I said, just really fragile, and it's kind of further assisted by the fact that she lives a very sheltered life. I mean, she lives with her mother, who who also, I should note, is uh, a wonderful turn by Barbara Hershey as her mother in this film. She, in a way, lives vicariously through Portman, Uh, You can kind of sense that as it goes on, but at the same time, she treats her much like a a child still, like a 12-year-old, to the point where Portman really reverts to that um, even more than she does outdoors when she's indoors at home. I mean, her bedroom is very pink. Uh, She's got dolls everywhere. I mean, there's unicorns, and I mean, you kind of expect her to put on a Richard Marks tape and and kind of hold hands with her mother and and sing, uh, right here waiting for you or something. I mean, it's... It's just really remarkable uh, how twelve year old, twelve years old, <laughs> she seems in this film at times. Um, another thing I like, and and I, the more I kind of thought about this film, the more I drew parallels with this film and the wrestler. Um, one of the most obvious ones, and like I just referenced, the the, the, the physical and mental toll uh, ballet takes on you, much like it does the wrestling. We can see the price that uh, a lot of the ballerinas pay. Um, again, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, It's just, it's a very, very difficult thing that demands a lot. And, you know, uh, we just, we kind of see that with her and with a lot of the characters, what they're willing to do. And, you know, you kind of don't get the same sense of camaraderie with the wrestlers. I think that's, I I certainly don't want to sound chauvinistic. It's one of those things that kind of comes out, you know, a lot of the women, when you get that group of them together in this film, they're considerably more catty, then you see when uh randy the ram and the wrestler goes back to the change room and it's a bit reverent he's kind of the old the old timer who still got it and they're kind of slapping and high-fiving and this <laughs> it's a lot more cut-eye and uh you know just death stares so um the film's kind of starts and you know, it goes along with uh with nina the portman character doing her thing and and uh, you can kind of see her start to rise up and fill, puff up a little bit with confidence until uh, Mila Kunis' character comes on the scene. And uh, Mila Kunis really, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it, and rather obviously, plays the uh, the yin to Portman's yang in every way, shape, and form, Portman very much being the fragile China doll who's for the most part seen in, in uh, almost like a pastel pink or white... Whereas Kunis's character is is constantly wearing black, she's got a heavy black eye makeup on. She's got a a tattoo of angel wings on her back, a rather large one. Um, Really, they're played. Aronofsky plays up those opposites, uh, be it physically or in personality or otherwise, um, to reasonably good effect, despite how obvious it is throughout the film. And I think it should be said, as much as we're we're heaping praise on Portman here. Uh, Kunis also puts in a pretty good performance and, and, you know, if I may say so, looks absolutely stunning throughout the film. Uh, she, she's someone that kind of say what you will about what she did on the 70s show. Um, she did play that role quite well and and, you know, maybe that's not the most challenging role in the world, but I think that she played it enough that I was very curious to see what she would do once she was able to kind of get out of TV and and get out of doing that sort of a thing, and maybe get away from teen-type films. And I know we've kind of seen that a little bit with her, uh, you know, The Book of Eli, which I haven't seen yet. Um, She was in Max Payne, which really was a terrible film uh, (laughs) in every way. But nonetheless, uh, you know, also, of course, Forgetting Sarah Marshall was probably up until this point the most memorable film role I'd seen her in. And, and again, it's not a demanding role, but what it does ask of her, uh, she certainly delivers. So in this one, though, I mean, it's very different from what we're used to seeing from her, and she has to bring the edge and the sex, and she's kind of vamping, and it's really a different role for her. Um, but I think, you know, she's going to get a little bit lost in the shuffle of Portman because her, the role she plays isn't as showy as much. Um... Another thing I noticed throughout this film, um, and I think it's it's typically it is a it's used as a device for films where there's characters who have a tenuous grasp on uh, reality or on anything sort of mental and emotional in life, and that's mirrors. There's there's I mean several times where uh, mirrors are. are very prominently displayed in this film, whether it's characters looking at them reflectively, or even if they're just kind of they're in them without kind of realizing they're looking at them, they're absentmindedly fumbling with something in their 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 bag, or you know whatever the case, maybe mirrors or something that Aronofsky uses uh, a great deal in this film, and I think certainly it's no secret that this is a psychological thriller. I mean, there's psychological issues with some of the characters, um, so you know that that's sort of an obvious thing that a lot of people use when you deal with films such as this. But, yeah, I mean, it's very apparent that he's, he's using them throughout and trying to at least vary the way they're used. Um, i just have a character look at it and kind of, you know, uh, start uh, daydreaming. Um, the film goes on, and you kind of see even further how much of a, a, a kind of a wilting flower Portman becomes. I mean, she does become the the lead dancer for the troupe, and it's something that's, you know, it's met with some kind of venom from uh, from some people in the company, because it's always, the thing that has always been with her, she's very rigid, and although she may be a good dancer, um, she doesn't have what it takes to do this, and it should be said that what they're calling on her to do is Swan Lake, which um, will require her to play two roles, the, the white swan and the black swan. Of course, you know, I don't really need to say too much about you can pretty much deduce what those two roles require in terms of physicality and so forth. Um, so it's it's kind of emphasized that they don't know if she's going to be able to pull it off. And it should be said, Cassell plays uh, the the um, I guess the uh, what would the term be? The uh, I don't know the 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 leader of the troop or the the teacher, or the instructor. Uh, I don't know. Forgive me, my. My ballet uh, <laughs> dialogue or, or vocabulary isn't what it once was. Um, but, I mean, we kind of see the, the rigors that he puts them through and he, his character is rather cold and he's a bit, oh well, not a bit, he, he's very much a kind of vain and, and egotistical man. Um, you know, Very demanding, certainly. Um, and, you know, I'm watching the film and I'm probably about 40 minutes in at this point and I think to myself, I still think, you know, it just goes to show you that with, it, when you're in the hands of a really good filmmaker, it doesn't really matter what the subject matter is I'm sure if any of us sat down and we thought about um, a number of films that on the surface wouldn't appeal to us, either whether it's the cast or the subject matter there are a lot of times where if you're in the hands of a good director a good director is able you know, to make what that is you're seeing very compelling, and I think Truth be told, a lot of our listeners aren't all that familiar with the inner workings of a ballet company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Zom, perhaps, I think he was in uh, the uh, the West Virginian troupe uh, that then went on to the, uh, the regionals, uh, and to great acclaim, certainly, with his improvisational flair. But um, with that being said, uh, let's move on past Zom and the prospect of him in one of those black tight outfits with... <laughs> With the all uh, the junk jangling this way and that, um again, you know we, we kind of see that the Aronofsky really keeping a tight rein on the color palette in this film. It, it You know, when we leave the confines of a lot of the other settings that the film takes place in, whether it's the ballet studio, whether it's uh, a house here or there, we go into a nightclub, we go into a few different places, and. Um, it just again, you know, he, he's certainly insisting on keeping that uh, that that vibe through the uh, through the colors. Um, I'll just talk about the score for a moment. Um, the score works really well, I think, in kind of conveying the fragility and the paranoia of Portman's character. Because there's times where you know it be, kind of becomes a thing. If she's if she's an unreliable narrator, where you don't know if what you're seeing from her is really happening or not happening, or how much of it's stuff she's cooking up in her head, or how much of it's real, or how much of it is people playing into the fact that she doesn't know what's real and what's not. Um, And I think there's times when the score uses, or is used to very good effect with that. And in fact, there's a moment when, I think she first gets the uh, the, uh, the lead role uh, in Black Swan that you can see in, in... in the mirror when she goes back to her uh, her dressing room. It's written, in, it's written in red lipstick, horror. And even that moment, I mean, it kind of just seems like catty, you know, ridiculous kind of Jersey Shore nonsense. Um, but again, with Aronofsky and in the hands of him and the score and what he's able to do with, with everything, the atmosphere he's able to create, it does give you, you almost become as... They have the anxiety and the paranoia that uh, that Portman does when you know when she 's seeing us um, yeah so there's a moment uh, further on in the film when I, I think we're probably how far in are we again about forty minutes, maybe thirty to forty five minutes in where we see some flowers on the on the screen uh, they 're given to uh, portman 's character and and I stopped to kind of think at that point that 's when I kind of really realized that. It was really a really muted color palette. I mean, it's obvious, but I think the the lengths to which uh, Aronofsky went to kind of keep it as minimal as he did, uh, and then to see these flowers kind of pop up, just really uh, punctuated that for me. Um, getting back to Portman, and again, it's something I said I was going to come back to over and over, uh, and I will. Her fragility in this, also, I find, you know, it's really infect- effective in making things much like the score, uh, making things more tense than they have any business being, because as I said, there's, there's moments when things that are, they're just relatively harmless in the grand scheme of things or in any other their seem seem, they, they have, the, they, they're able to invoke this, this dread and this kind of, uh, this ill feeling, um, that again, she, she really pulls off quite well throughout the film, um. In terms of filmmakers, the the one filmmaker I really feel influenced him for this. I mean, again, if I'm going to get away from the Argento and Suspiria thing for a minute, because this isn't about a coven of, of witches uh, in, in the typical sense, uh, is probably David Cronenberg, because there's these really minor but really effective flourishes of uh, of body horror in a way that are brought on by the neurosis of uh, of, of some of the characters. Um, I think it is... Is it Chris or... Sammy as well, I know. Uh, they don't like finger violence. And there's a fucking brutal scene um, involving a finger in this, where um, there's a loose flap of skin hanging just above the, the rounded portion of the nail, and the whole piece of skin gets pulled off. Um, to about the knuckle, and uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty potent stuff. And again, I just think it goes to show sometimes that when you do something like that well, and you give it a certain weight, um, it can be more wince-inducing than seeing a man in a room with a sword, swinging it around and, and beheading, you know, several people. Um, again, I just think it's a mark of a great filmmaker the economy of being able to. Winch and, and kind of punch you in the gut With this kind of nasty imagery Of nothing more than just a, a finger being A little bit of skin being pulled off her finger um, I talked about Barbara Hirsch already And again how great she is And I think also she's probably going to get a nod For a best supporting actress or, mm, Possibly I mean her role I think is a little bit one note In that she's kind of only given the work As a uh, Domineering a Dominating Mother. In fact, her performance it, it kind of reminded me that she was kind of channeling a much less religious, fanatic version of Piper Laurie in Carrie, uh, but still very much uh, suffocating her daughter's life. That's kind of the vibe I got. Um, and while I'm just seeing that um, her alternate name is Barbara Seagull, not Seagull, but Seagull as in the bird, that's not very attractive. Um, so I'm just I'm taking a quick look here at Hershey. I mean, she's certainly an actress that I'm familiar with, and I've seen some of her things. But she, she you know doesn't tend to work in too many things that uh that I dip my feet into. She's just let a lot of TV work, a lot of Hallmark nonsense, and uh, I know she did Riding the Bullet and a few other things. But it generally isn't someone that works. Hoosiers, of course, actually very good in Hoosiers. Um, doesn't do a lot of things that that really I'm too down with. Uh, although early on, you know, doing the stunt man with uh, <laughs> with one and only Steve Rails back, I think there's something to be said for that. But anyway, um, yeah. So she, as much as her performance, I don't want to say it's one note so much, but she's not getting a lot to do with, and she still pulls it off quite admirably. Um, again, there's just there's several moments where. You get this really grotesque body imagery and the, these things that are happening, and again, it's just something that you know, being a genre fan, I do see a lot of splatter and a lot of gore and grue in films. But there's some stuff in here that really made me want to see Aronofsky go head first into something that was pretty visceral and 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 kind of grabbed you and, and shook you up like that. Um, because he's cool, he has the power as a filmmaker to do so. Um, there's a lot of moments I find with the film that specifically with uh, with Portman's character where she, we see how sexually repressed she is or stunted she is and it seems like for the first three or four scenes in the film when there's any sort of sexual interaction with her and someone else or her and herself for that matter that she's always interrupted or something happens to stop her before she climaxes. Um, I haven't quite worked around in my head what... <laughs> Whether or not she's maybe saying with that other than to say, perhaps she is repressed and uh, you know, she clearly needs to let go, which which is something that is harped on uh, by Cassell. And again, performances, Cassell is his usual excellent self. Um Beyond that, um there's a really fantastic, kinda of thrilling moment in the tub mm-hmm. that evoked a little bit of and I guess I can't help but see it nowadays whenever I see a younger woman legs open sitting in a tub. I can't help but think of um, Heather camp, of course, in Nightmare on Elm Street, but a pretty good moment that is it, it, one of the more horrific moments in the film. Um, it gives you a pretty good jolt. It uh, involves her in the bathtub. So, um, And then it kind of goes on, and there, there's a really great scene with the, the subway, where she's on a subway, and it really has this bizarre kind of... I don't know, man, like this, this kind of Polanski or this bizarre there's an awkward sexual moment where she's on a subway and this old man's kind of simulating, you know, a lot of sexual stuff uh, while he's sitting in the chair looking at her, and it's just it's uh, (laughs) kind of bizarre Um, so, eventually what we see is over the course of the film uh, Kunis' character is the opposite of her, she's not as good a dancer, but she dances with her emotion, and she's someone who, you know, lives on her emotion she's raw, she's sexual, she's primal gives into her base desires a lot more and she's not as repressed and 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 everything and everything so on and so forth um so it finally uh culminates in a pretty fantastic scene of of kunis finally convincing her um to get out of her shell and come out of the house and go out with her and they pop any or mdma cap i guess although it's never said um that's what it was um and she kind of you know of course she's she's monged at this point and uh it kind of leads into a, a blurry a really blurry scene where uh i'll just i'll come out and say it because i've already talked to a few people about this where then uh ends with uh, a reasonably steamy lesbian scene with uh, <laughs> with kunis and portman and that i was kind of surprised to see from them but i guess again you know they kind of put their faith in, in a director like aronofsky um and that scene, prior to that, there's a lot of colors and stuff there in this club, and you get a lot of reds, a lot of blues, a lot of greens and stuff. Um, but near the end of that scene, with the lesbian scene, and this happens a few times in the film, and I have to presume, obviously, it's done with um, CG, but it's done absolutely flawlessly, is there's moments when Portman will be looking at Kunis and listening to her say something, and... Before your very eyes, I mean, it, it it transforms into Portman, and it you know obviously it's just very jarring to her mentally that she's she's talking to uh, Kunis, and all of a sudden it becomes her um, herself, and you know the film kind of it goes that way. And that's what I mean about the unreliable narrator. You're never quite sure how much of what's happening is is cooked up in her own head. Um. So. Sorry, this was another one where I wrote in the dark. Oh, there's some pretty good reveals. I mean, near this is probably with about 20 or 30 minutes left in the film, if that, where Portman really is starting to lose her fucking mind. It it it's sort of like um like a carousel or something, something to that effect, where it. It starts spinning faster and faster and it's it just really gets out of control and I mean she's really really just I mean she's gone. She's just completely lost it and it results in a few things. It's almost um gives the same effect of a dream within a dream, but it's not a dream, it's just she you don't know what's reality within reality or what's you know, it just kinda plays like that, although it's it's not a dream, it just kinda gives you that, that sensation with film. You don't know what which uh of what you're seeing really is the actual factual moment in the film. And, and again, it's played to great effect. It gives the audience uh, no chance to kind of gain their footing. So it's really fantastic. Um, and we see that, you know, really now we're getting close to the end, that Portman really plums the, death, the depths of, uh, of having an emotional and mental complete meltdown. And it's kind of hurt to her benefit in terms of what she has to do, but at the same time... It's, uh, it's it's pretty staggering to see. I mean, she, it her character was asked to lose her in, her inhibitions, and she does that, and it's it's so convincing to see her actually do that and understand that's what the role was called for, but still do a complete 180 uh, and, and pull this off. It's really tremendous to see, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, the film. Gosh, I don't want to spoil it by saying it, but. I won't say it's identical because it's certainly not, but it, again, there's a lot of parallels with this and The Wrestler. Um, and I don't want to say too much more than that. Again, I don't think that's as obvious as it may seem on the surface, but uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, that's that. Uh, I'll, of course, jump into my make or break, and it is uh, just the scenes that, well, really, when the, the back third of the, f- back quarter of the film, when uh, it really builds up to this this frothing mental hysteria that the Portman uh, is is in the, the midst of. I mean, it really is a sight to behold someone. It's sort of like um, a more demure version of <laughs> of Isabella Johnny uh, at times in, in Possession. I mean, just fucking going insane. Um, my MVT for the film is... Uh, this is a tough one. I really want really wanted to give it to Portman, but... Um, I'm going to give it to Aronofsky. Um, I think for him to bring this material together in a compelling fashion, to bring the people he did together and to just to pull it off as he did, is, again, just a testament to the fact that he's one of the great filmmakers working today. I think a lot of people are quick to mention the Finchers and a lot of other filmmakers that are working today. And, and you know, with all due respect, I do probably before David Fincher, to, um, or the Paul Thomas Andersons, or or these uh, these uh, filmmakers to the Aronofsky's, but Aronofsky is a master filmmaker, and it's great to see someone who has um, genre leanings uh, making films that are a little outside that. And I want to say, and as a, as an aside, before I get to my score, that um, I don't see how this film is going to... I'm really curious if this is going to play. I think they're going to drop it in December, right around Christmas. And this is a film that features some really fantastical imagery and transformations and metamorphosis and body horror and things like that, that it's not full on one of those films, but it, it it's sprinkled throughout to the point where a lot of unsuspecting multiplex going, uh, movie watchers are going to hate this film, uh, because it, they will not know what to expect. Um, because it really does kind of straddle the line between art a little bit and a little bit horror and it's a really interesting hybrid of film that I think if you're someone like me who likes film across the spectrum um it's kind of great to see that line straddled with such skill and I do also want to say there are hints of kind of camp and and melodrama in this that um almost the point of absurdity, but again I, I think that it's it's intentional, it's handled quite well, so anyway, that leads me to my score for the uh, the film, and that's an 8.75 out of 10 I kind of battled back and forth an 8.5, 8.75, but I think in the end, I've uh, I saw this on Tuesday it's now Thursday and I've been thinking about it a lot, as you know, I saw 8 films so far at the festival and, and this and maybe one, one or two others are ones I keep coming back to, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my score, and we'll be right back with Pink Saris. Are you looking for a way to connect with people who like the things that you like? Whether it's music, movies, TV, or whatever you're into, head on over to the Palaver.com forums. <clears throat> yes, yes, but the forums and message and boards, and boards are elitist and archaic. and archaic. Well, yeah, maybe if you're a whole. Palaver.com is home to all your favorite podcasts. So why not head over there now? Start talking about all the things you want to talk about. That's palaver.com. palav dot com. Woo! Yo. I is back to talk about my main gyal, Sampat Pal. So, anyway, uh, terrible accents aside, uh, it's time to get into my next uh, film review here for the festival. And uh, this film is also, uh, as I referenced at the beginning of the episode, uh, probably the mo- well, certainly the most feminine-minded of all the films I covered. And, and in saying that, it's the only documentary I chose, and it's also the uh, certainly the most socially-minded and socially-conscious film I, sa- I I had seen. It wasn't an overly conscious decision to see something uh, such as this, but I just found the the subject matter utterly. Fascinating and and kind of too good to pass up. Uh, And of course, I am referring to the documentary called Pink Saris. Now, Pink Saris is um, directed by a reasonably celebrated, considerably, uh, certainly a a much celebrated uh, female documentarian, Kim Longinotto. Um, She's done a number of documentaries. I'm just going back and looking because I have to be honest, I'm not entirely familiar with a lot of her work. Um, it looks like she's done in stuff in Japan. And um, of course, ju- ju- just judging by the titles Eat the Kimono, Shinjuku Boys. Um, oh, yes, I think I've heard of this one, the Shinjuku Boys. Anyway, this this makes for fascinating uh, podcasting, to be sure. I have one called <laughs> Divorce Iranian Style, which sounds pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I, it really she's someone who champions women's rights um, throughout uh, her work, throughout her body of work, and it seems to be um, that she really uh, is trying to provide a voice to women that, that don't have a voice otherwise, uh, and trying to light on a lot of issues that I think a lot of us take for granted and overlook. Um, now, this film, I guess, in summary, let me just, uh, if I may, I'm going to hop over to tiff.net for a moment, and I'm going to bring up the synopsis for this film that I saw there. It kind of compelled me to jump into it. Um, so, here it is. Uh, it says, um are we here? And, Okay. Uh, wow, well, again, more incomparable podcasting. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I'm trying to kind of edit this on the fly here. Okay, so it says, If you're shy, you'll die. This is just one of the catchy phrases uttered by the formidable Sampat Paul Devi, leader of the Gulabi Gang, a.k.a. the Pink Gang, the center of this stirring film. Her base is northern India's state of Uttar Pradesh, uh, where entrenched tradition continues to condone child marriages, dowry deaths, and abuse inflicted upon wives by husbands and in-laws. The Gulabi gang seeks to help women from the lowest caste, known as Dalits, or untouchables. The female gang members assert their presence by wearing bright pink saris and make good on sampa Paul's assertion that there is no higher power than a woman. So really what it uh, you know i just had, i kind of this that description and the picture that came with it accompanied it was a picture of uh, a woman in um in her sari her pink sari and i just i kind of had this vision of this roving pack of um these indian women in these saris kind of just uh, kicking the shit out of uh sort of some rather villainous men so and not to like make light of it certainly but that's kind of the image i'd had um so, yeah, I mean, this is this is a film certainly that uh, really looked looked like it was going to compel me, and it did. Um, before I get into the film, I want to talk about the crowd. Most of the films I tend to see tend to be of the uh, the midnight madness variety. You got a lot of young people, college kids. Uh, I guess somewhat of an eclectic crowd. But this this crowd was uh, a crowd that I think. Um, Dylan over at Paris Cinema would would be an absolute heaven to be in the midst of, and it was essentially a feminine geriatric crowd. So, Dylan, I uh, I walked into the theater. I kind of looked around at, at all the Silver Foxes, and uh, and I thought of you, my friend, and I smiled. I truly did. I'm not just saying that. And I thought but I got to write this down and and drop a line for Dylan here. Uh, pour one out for him because uh, you know, a lot of a lot of grannies in the crowd that day, um, but anyway, kind of enough about that. I guess I'm kind of going against the spirit here of the the film uh, unintentionally. Um, so this uh, this film, you know, in addition to, to that stuff, it's just I think my primary reason for wanting to see it. Oh, thank God! I thought I, I hadn't hit record you know, I was going to kill myself. Um, was just the tremendous respect I have for women, um, namely my own mother, who, um, despite having a close relationship with my father, my mother raised me by herself for a lot of years. Um, I could have lived with my father, but I chose to stay with my mother, and she worked, you know, incredibly long hours to provide for me and, and instilling me certain values as a man, as a person that I've. Uh, I'm happy to say I've carried into my my domestic life. Um, Things I believe about being a good person, being a good husband, being a good man, being a good parent, um, being a good son. These are things that I certainly got from my mother. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect I know, for my mother-in-law, who really, I mean, the phrase, you know, like a second mother gets bandied about by a lot of people. But I, I truly feel that and I'm very thankful to have her in my life and have a lot of respect for what she does. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my own beautiful wife, uh, the mother of my children. Um, and I just think, on the whole, I think women, because of uh, having grown up around them, I, I appreciate you know the works of people like Almodafar and, and people like that. Who have a, a real love and admiration for uh, women and sometimes the unglamorous things they do that are completely and utterly selfless. So I think that kind of struck a chord with me when I when I um, I wanted to see this film. Um, and I just think about a lot of the shit that women put up with and, and how they unfortunately rel- remain silent victims, and, uh, I think, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I wanted to see this kind of rise up in this kind of turning convention on its ear and turning tradition on its ear and the idea of, of, uh, gender roles, um, kind of turn on it's here especially in a society that at that at this in this uh particular portion uh you know is decidedly uh imbalanced um so the film opens up and of course we see a pack of the women wearing the pink saris and and it's it's pretty you know quite the sight to behold to see this you had know, a pack of women in these these electric pink or hot pink saris you know kind of rolling into town it's dusty it's you know dirty it's almost like uh you know, like uh, Toe Cutter and the boys. You know, <laughs> just rolling in here. Um, and thankfully, lunch the the filmmaker, does a good job, I think, of educating people to a degree without it turning into a lecture um, on the, the the caste system in India, which, of course, is just a class system that is rather rigidly adhered to, even in this day and age, as as um, as uh, improbable as that seems to my western sensibilities uh i you know I, I just believe in certain basic human rights that are that should be afforded to everyone uh regardless of anything in the pursuit of of, of happiness and and material goods and so forth but anyway uh, it talks about the castes and the lowest caste being considered untouchables and a lot of the women that sam uh helps tend to come from this untouchable caste where they're really exploited um and the worst thing about this exploitation is they're exploited by their family, um, primarily their husbands or their in-laws. Uh, more often than not, they're raped. They're abused physically. Uh, they're essentially they're indentured indentured servants. And you see a lot of times these young women who've been married uh, far too young. I mean, we're talking 12, 13, 14 years old. Um... You know, it's just staggering to see some of them with their children, but in any event, some of these women have have come to her attacked uh, as this this mediator and this crusader. Um, and the one girl, the the first case we kind of see, and it's one I, I kind of was, uh, you know, that it really, I found fascinating, was uh, a girl from the lowest caste, an untouchable, um, was, uh, she had a boyfriend from a, a slightly higher caste, and uh, she was impregnated by him. And they weren't married, of course, which uh, means that a lot of times if a woman is imp- becomes pregnant prior to marriage, uh, she's killed in, in like an honor killing or something to that effect. And, you know, it just kind of... Oof, it just took me back. I mean, just, I just... I couldn't leave, You know, I mean, I, I listen, I, I know a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, I like to think I have at least a a reasonable amount of understanding of of, certainly not the complexities of of what goes on in the world but a base understanding of of some of the the traditions and and cultures and so forth Um, but really what had happened was this girl was going to die if the boy didn't marry her the boy didn't want the boy's family influenced him not to because she was an untouchable she was basically dirt and they're called untouchables because they're really they they will not be touched they're just looked at as absolute dirt what Saint Paul does with things, she gets out there. The whirling dervish that she is. I mean, I'm telling you, Mario Adorf could take a lesson from her. That I mean, this the woman is a Tasmanian devil in pink chiffon when she gets out there and she's just whirling around and and she's she just it's 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 incredible to see her um, do what she does. I mean, it really is, and she kind of holds people accountable. And the one you know, you see the one these young young girls, 14 years old, they're still kind of trying to find themselves uh amidst you know um a lot of repression a lot of abuse and and i mean let's face it even with uh in any society being a, a woman or a boy of that age is difficult but having to endure a lot of that thing those things it's certainly even more so um, and that of course is a gross understatement um but the girl's very quiet and uh Sampapal kind of says to her and kind of saying to her and as an aside kind of lamenting that if more girls spoke up the world would change and I, I think I thought about that and you think about it on the surface and it seems like a really simple statement it's well yeah obviously but but it's a really profound thing because I kind of talked about that earlier with the the silent victims and how a lot of things I mean even in western society women get abused and the things they endure and they're treated you know just terribly in the relationships um and I just think uh you know it's just a simple line but it's pr- it's pretty profound and then she kind of peppers us with another one uh which I also kind of talked about when I synopsized the film where she says if you're shy you'll die and that kind of sounds like this cute little rhyming kind of grandmaster flashy kind of uh phrase but it it holds a lot of weight when you consider it in the context it's said and what really it means um a lot of times if these women are not willing to by force um in some way take back what what is theirs they will just be bulldozed until there's nothing left of them you know you we see some women in this that are just a husk a shell of a person because of everything they've endured i mean it's it just it's incredible you know to see some of this um you know, and then it kind of, you see that she takes the one girl to the police station. The police kind of sit on their hands, but a lot of this. And it was actually, it's really great. Um, she's she's talking about something that we consider kind of a novel, con- not a novel, a, an obvious concept or statement. And she says, you know, marriage that is, is based on love is, is a good thing. I mean, that's what marriage should be and that should be about casts or about material things or anything else. And... She goes on to say, "Well, you know, people choose their food and clothes, why not their partner And you think to yourself, "Well, yeah, gee, I mean, you know again, it seems kind of obvious in a western uh, from a western standpoint, but you have to really you know put yourself in in that position and and think about some of these things we take for granted, um such as that, you know, and it's just it's such a you kind of really get behind someone that that's just you know trying to to provide these very basic things for these women." Um so yeah, I mean, I already talked about the the grim prospect of of getting pregnant um, when you 're underage or excuse me when you 're uh, when you 're not married um, and uh the, anyway, this scene kind of culminates and, and it should be said there is some humor in this film um, This is a very poor part of India and as a result there's some people that that aren't literate there's people that still kind of believe in um for lack of a better description magic uh or you know different deities and so forth and the one the father of the boy who you know he was kind of shaming his son is not marrying this untouchable he he comes out you know thinking he's uh you know superfly snuck off off the top ropes and he's He's got his arms out, and he's. Blah, blah, blah. I'm. I'm. Uh, I have the power of so and so God, and she kind of just like kisses her teeth and like, basically just, just slays this guy verbally in no time. And she's like, "You're an idiot." She's like, "I don't believe in magic. You're nonsense." And she's like, "I'll tell you what. If you know magic, <laughs> if you have this power that you're you're claiming, turn me into dust right now." And she pulls up this lawn chair and she sits down and. She kind of crosses her legs and and just it's it's something that I I, I clearly can't really uh, it it truly does fall into that you have to you have to be there to see it it, it was a pretty amusing moment to see her just you know, this is probably a man who whose bluster and his hot air had, had you know taken him a fair distance more than it should have in life and to see her kind of just slay him like that was was really really entertaining. Um One thing that the documentary, I think, does, and I wish it had have done more of, but then again, I think you're tackling such a big subject that something like this could almost be, you know, like a four or six part miniseries, you know, an hour, an hour and a half each, and can I give you a chance to, um, maybe focus on five or six different cases she was associated with, um, as well as the common thread being her own life throughout the, uh, the series, um, because you see that her partner Babuji, um, he's actually from the highest caste. He's an educated man, and he fell in love with her. She's from the lowest caste, or the second lowest caste, and he lives with her, and he's kind of given up uh, all the, the creature comforts and material things to be with her and to take care, you not know, to, to 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 be her partner, and and really her partner in the truest sense of what we can see. You know, he he dotes on her, and he's he's really really good to her, and you know, it's, uh, it was good to see, but like I said, there there's snippets of, um, of kind of insight into her personal life, because we see she's a bit of a contradictory figure, and in, in some of the things that she she talks about, like, she does have, um, children who we don't see, and I, I don't know what the, you know, the dynamic is there or anything, but there are certain things I wondered more about Sempat Paul than, than beyond the bluster a little bit, and, and kind of the case-by-case thing. Um, you know, so she's kinda of moving around here doing other case or I use the word case, it's not like she's a lawyer. She really is more like a, a superhero. Um, and people come to her all the time and she's kinda of sitting in her, her lawn chair and listening to what they have to say and she'll kinda of get up and be spurred into action. But um one girl comes to her who's really, really broken down. This this girl got married at probably eight or nine years old. Eight or nine years old. I don't think we can even wrap our heads around that. I, I, you know, got married at 27, I think, 28, 27, and I was barely ready for it, and I was 20 years older than this girl. I mean, it's just, you know, I can't even fathom that. Um, but anyway, she comes to her, and she talks about how she's been beaten for 10 years by her in-laws, she's been taken advantage of, and... It's crazy, you know, and it's really heartbreaking to see a lot of times in this documentary. Some of these women have just resigned themselves to such a life of misery that there isn't so much as a ray of sunshine in their life. I mean, there's nothing, nothing beyond the very basic things to to, to do in life. Work, eat, sleep. Not even eat good food, eat next to nothing sleep hardly ever, work like a fucking mule. And it just you see these people they're just broken by life and, and I think about my life and, and the joy in life, things like this, being able to go to the film festival or I take my son to the park to play or have an ice cream cone and things like this. And I think it you know, I I really it really puts things in perspective. When I see this woman who's probably, you know, barely ready to enter college. She's been married for ten years and beaten for all ten of those years. Um, you know, it really is heartbreaking, and we see that the one girl, she she says to Sampa Paul, she says, um, "You know, can't you take?" Me? She actually, I'm sorry, she says to the documentarian behind the camera. She says, "Can't you take me with you?" And she doesn't have any idea where this one's from. She doesn't have any idea if this woman means any sort of ill will. She doesn't have any idea about anything. She's really walking in blindly, begging to walk into a blind situation that's how bad her current situation is because to her anything is better than what she is i mean i think it really is a testament to what she's had to endure and you know we actually see this girl's wedding day um this is the girl from the beginning we see her wedding day and it's again it's just sad. And it's such a stark reminder of 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 things uh, we see that um it's her wedding day, and literally, she looks like someone's died. Not a smile on her face, because she's realizing, you can kind of see behind her her eyes, the wheels are turning in terms of what she's going to be enduring for the rest of her life. And, uh, it's just so sad. She is so sad. Um, I do want to say that during the marriage ceremony... Actually, let me look this up while I'm, while I'm here. you have to forgive me again. More riveting podcasting. Um there was a god they referenced in the marriage ceremony, the god Vishnu. And, oh, well, let's see, Vishnu. And of course, my internet's slow. Uh, Vishnu is the supreme god in the Vaishnavite tradition of Hinduism. Uh, he's the supreme soul. He's the all-pervading essence of all beings. Wow, Vishnu... I sound rather ignorant. Vishnu sounds like quite the powerful uh, form of god um one of the five primary forms of god okay so you do truly learn something every day um i had to look that up sorry Vish. um but yeah i mean as i said you've never seen an unhappier bride than this one and it really is heartbreaking because she still is really a girl she's kind of getting this death sentence um there's moments, you when I kinda of talked about it being a balanced and objective look at at Senpatsal, where we kinda of see that, that there's shades of her kinda of drinking her own Kool-Aid or reading her own press clippings. Like she kind of there's moments where she kinda of struts around a bit like a peacock and you almost think you're watching a Terrell Owens interview in that she refers to herself in the third person a few times. Not to the same levels of, of obnoxiousness, of course, as to but nonetheless, you know, she'll say to people, Hey, you see me in the paper, you know, kind of those, you know, I'm Sam Paul, the leader of the Gulabi gang, you better recognize, like, it's that kind of, kind of a thing, but, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I talked about the marriage, and how young these kids are, and everything, you know, I was just kind of astonishing to see, um, Oh, and then you know, again, there's another case. I think there's probably about four or five cases sprinkled throughout this, where one of the girls is even more despondent than the rest, and she's really talking about suicide. And uh, again, a line that that seems so simple when I'm going to utter it, but I think when you kind of look at it in the context, it really, really spoke to me. Was uh, one of the girls, "I'm going to kill myself. I I can't do this." And and kind of takes her firmly but gently and says, "What's so brave about dying? Stand up and live. That takes bravery." And I think about what these women do, and I think about, you know, the word bravery getting bandied about a lot. And I think about how hard it is sometimes to do the right thing in the face of utter resistance. I think about all these women that have, been, that have formed an alliance, to, to a voice, to say, no, we're not going to be put in these positions anymore. And I, And I think it's really incredible to see, and to see her urge her to say, listen, life's going to be hard on you at times. But going to get better over time over years maybe not now but you have to play a part in this and not so much a, a recruiting thing but just life in general you know things are going to get better um well i don't know what that word is heart oh i just it says here you know this year it's just really fascinating or not fascinating but it's it's really great to see that her heart matches her bravery. I mean, how often do we see that? I guess they, they really are, they do kind of go hand in hand, but um, it's really, really fascinating to see. And and again, uh, I just want to touch another line uh, in this documentary that really kind of really touched me was uh, near the end when one of the girls was crying. She said, she's, she's kind of, you know, it's cathartic and she's kind of working through some stuff and, and it's even even more so for Samp Paul because there was a bit of a personal situation domestic in her life, um, where she's not not anything physical, but she she had a falling out. Um and she just you know, she said women have nothing but their tears and I stopped and I thought about that. I thought you know, sadly she has a point here because a lot of times these women's they're they're reduced to feeling like dirt. So they have no pride. Their bodies are not their own. They're being used and abused by father-in-laws and husbands and beaten by mother-in-laws and and all this really and when she says that it you know out of context it sounds to me something trite but in the context of real life it's something that's really really profound um, and moving Um near the end finally we get to see a legitimate smile from one of the girls and I can't tell you how that smile radiated Um it just it was uh, really touching to see finally a big smile from one of these girls. I mean, you used to seeing these poor little girls, um, just with, with frowns, and, I, you know, it was really nice to see. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, those are all my notes, actually. Um, my make-or-break scene, I'll jump into all that, of course. My make-or-break is obviously the first scene with Senpap Paul, where we kind of see, uh, what she's all about, and we kind of see her in action, and the, she's taking the charge, and kicking ass, and taking names. Um, I really loved seeing that, and I really loved seeing her kind of turn all that in his ear. And She, throughout the film, consistently thumbs her nose at convention, because convention is what's held a lot of these women back. It's been designed to hold a lot of these women back, so it was really great to see her just fucking on the move. It was just really, really great. Um, my, the most valuable thing about this really is, is the bravery of these women. I, again, I think it takes something to be a brave person, and And they really are brave because, you know, the consequence could be pretty dire. Um, My score for this is a 7.5. I do, like I said, I wish I had seen more of her life and talked a bit more about her. Maybe she wasn't comfortable talking about her history and kind of, you know, there were certain conditions that had to be met in order to film this. She wanted more focus on cases that she took on as opposed to herself. I don't really know. But if I'm going to criticize it, it did have a bit of a wash, rinse, repeat at times. So those are my notes. Uh that's that and the next episode will be due I'll actually finally have another voice in the room. Um and that is going to be when uh the Uncool Cat and I will cover this new Takeshi Takeshimike blood soaked samurai film Thirteen Assassins and the Kim ji woon absolutely brutal punishing revenge thriller, I saw the devil so i will see you next time adios thanks for listening you can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com you can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 and you can email the gentleman at midnight cinema at gmail.com